1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
0: Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analyzing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapters 93, 94, 95, and 96 of The Da Vinci Code. Now, where we left off, not a lot happened. I've got to be honest with you. I think I did like six chapters last week and it was the most boring stretch of chapters. Lieutenant Colette's just still wandering around that chateau, just trying to keep busy. And he found some recording equipment and he, and he even made that boring. Fash is still getting drunk at Biggin Hill Airport. And Langdon and Sophie have gone to the library. What a way to break momentum. We were really building up to something and then it was like, oh, let's go to the library. <gasps> and I love libraries, but a theology library, I'm sorry. No, thanks, not for me. Anyway, let's start. We got chapter 93 and it's Silas arriving at London's Opus Dei Centre, which is a modest brick building at 5 Orme Court overlooking the North Walk at Kensington Gardens. The level of detail never fails to get me. I don't need the actual address, Dan, but... I- and so Silas is like, yes, refuge, sanctuary, sanctuary. He's like, let's do it. So Remy had dropped him off around the corner because he was like, oh, I don't want the limo to be seen on all the main streets. Meanwhile, they're around the corner from Big Ben and Parliament House. I think they're all main streets and it's raining. But Silas is like, yep, good thinking, Remy. And he's just like, la-da-dee, la-da-da, walking in the rain to Opus Day. So Silas just lets himself in. The door's unlocked. He goes into the foyer. There was some sort of door chime or something. They've rigged up something to let them know when someone just waltzes in. And so some guy walks down and he's like, oh, hello. He goes, can I help you? And Silas notes that he had kind eyes that seem not to even register Silas's startling physical appearance. So that's kind of nice. We haven't heard many good things about Opus Day, but at least they're not mean to albinos. That's That's a tick in their column. But they do seem a little too trusting because Silas just goes, oh, my name's Silas. I'm an Opus Day numerary. Can I stay here for the night? And this guy's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> he's like, you don't even have to ask. There's two empty rooms on the third floor. Do you want some tea and some bread? And he's like, yeah, actually I would, thank you. Wow, hot tip for anyone who's in London or in any major city, I guess. Find the Opus Day headquarters. If you're hungry and you need a cup of tea, Just let yourself in and try your luck. I think you'll get replenished. They might try and brainwash you while you're there, but hey, free tea and bread, sign me up. And Silas is like, cool. And he just goes upstairs, strips out of his robe. (laughs) He's in his undergarments. Okay, undergarments. What's he just wearing socks and jocks? I don't know what, (laughs) I guess that's what his undergarments are. Just say undies, I don't know. So Silas prays, he finishes his food and then he goes to sleep. And then three stories below, a phone's ringing and it's the Opus Dei Numerary who had welcomed Silas. He answers the phone and the caller says, this is the London police. We are trying to find an albino monk. (laughs) I mean, it is a good way to sum up Silas. As, As offensive as it is, sums him up quite well. And the police guy says, we've had a tip off that he might be there. Have you seen him? And as much as this guy's super trusting and welcoming, he's also a fucking snitch because he goes, yeah, he's here, he's here, is something wrong? And the police officer's like, oh, he's there now? And he goes, yes, he's upstairs praying. And the police say, leave him there. Don't say a word to anyone. I'm sending officers over right away. So snitches get stitches Opus Day. You'd think they'd protect one of their own, but nah. Okay, so we go to chapter 94. And then we're getting the whole fucking backstory about St. James's Park. Oh my goodness gracious. Okay, St. James's Park is a sea of green in the middle of London. Okay, so it's a park. Once enclosed by King Henry VIII and stocked with deer for the hunt, it's now open to the public. Cool, cool. On sunny afternoons, Londoners picnic beneath the willows, do they? And feed the pond's resident pelicans, whose ancestors were a gift to Charles II from the Russian ambassador. I do not give a fuck about the pelicans in St. James's Park. I am sorry, Dan Brown. You've got one tidbit too many in this book. That's not even trivia I can use. That's not coming up at a pub trivia. If I go to a trivia night and they say, what animal... Did a Russian ambassador gift to Charles II? I'm not gonna remember Pelican. What a useless little tidbit. Okay, so we're with the teacher. And so the teacher is being referred to as the teacher. And the teacher's like, I don't see any Pelicans. Oh my God, so there's not even any fucking Pelicans. He sees pigeons though. Oh, we get a whole paragraph about the fucking pigeons. Anyway, so the teacher, he's walking through the park via the pigeons, not the Pelicans. And he can see the building that housed the knight's tomb ahead. But then he's flashing back to when he met up with Remy. So Remy had parked the limousine and it says the teacher approached the front passenger door of the parked limousine, implying that he's new to the scene when really T-Bing just hopped out the back, walked around and came into the passenger seat. And the teacher, aka T-Bing, also has a flask of cognac. And so he takes a swig of that and- I do believe because Remy has famously got a peanut allergy. t was in the backseat of the limo crushing up those snackies. Remember, because he had snackies in the limo before. I think that was also foreshadowing or hinting to us that there's snackies, there's peanut snackies in the limo. And now it seems like he's crushed up some of these peanut snackies and put them in the flask. All very convenient, very easy neat way to make Remy die. So T-Bing hops into the front seat and Remy holds up the keystone and he was like, look at this, look at this. It was almost lost. And the teacher says, you've done so well. And he goes, we have done so well. And so he lays the keystone in the teacher's eager hands and the teacher admired it for a long moment, smiling. Okay, but it's T-Bing. He's seen the fucking crypt He was there on the plane when you opened it up. He's been holding it and carrying it for half the morning. And now apparently he's looking at it with like this admiration, like he's never seen it before. And what does Remy mean? Like it was almost lost. No, it wasn't. It was with Teabing the whole time. You just rescued it from the teacher. They've fabricated these stakes where the teacher finally got hold of the keystone. He's had it the whole time. So then the teacher, he says, hey, well, that's great. Good job. Let's toast to our success. So he hands over, well, it says the bottle. I thought it was a flask, but now it's a bottle. I don't know. He hands over a bottle and Remy takes a swig and he says the Cognac tasted salty, but Remy didn't care. Oh, 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 that's peanuts. And Remy's like, yes, I'm fucking killing it. We've done so well. And he's he's swigging from that flask slash bottle and he's saying, yes, it's warming my blood. And then he's like, wait a minute this alcohol's also warm in my throat. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm actually feeling quite hot. Then he's like, hmm, it's actually, it's, I'm actually struggling to breathe over here. And teacher Bing, he takes the flask back. Okay, so it is a flask. And he says, Remy, as you are aware, you are the only one who knows my face. I placed enormous trust in you. And Remy's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, he's like loosening his tie because he's like, I can't breathe. And he says, and your identity shall go with me to the grave. And the teacher Bing, he's like, yeah. That's the whole point. And Remy's like, rot row. And teacher Bing says, I know I promised you freedom, but considering your circumstances, this is the best I can do. And Remy's like croaking now. And then he's like, holy shit, I'm being murdered. <laughs> he's like, oh God, you got me. You got me teacher Bing. I didn't see it coming. And now he's registering the saltiness of the alcohol. And he's like, God damn it. I knew, I knew alcohol wasn't salty. And Remy, now that he's cottoned on, he's thinking, shit, what an asshole! I made everything possible for him. How could he do this? And Teacher Bing's just sitting there calmly, just facing forward, staring at the windshield, probably trying to eye down a pelican. And Remy's trying to lunge for the teacher, but his stiffening body could barely move. And he's like, ah, oh, geez, I'm dying. And then he tries to clench his fists to hit the car horn, but he can't, he can't do it. He's, pre- he's pretty much dead at this point. And so, yeah, then he dies. Rest in peace, Remy. manservant Remy. And there's no pedestrians hanging out around the park uh, in this tourist area. No pedestrians at all, because then t like, all right. And so he hops out of the limousine and he's like, la, 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 that's that. People are gonna see this dead body in the front seat of the car soon. Pretty soon, I believe. And he's just thinking about how Remy had sealed his own fate because of the fuck up where he showed his face at the temple church which was completely unnecessary since, again, Teabing had control of the Keystone. They didn't need the ruse of going to the fake church, doesn't matter. And he's like, I always thought I might need to eliminate him eventually, but like, here we are. Oh, well. And then he's thinking, Robert Langdon's unexpected visit to Chateau Villette had brought the teacher both a fortuitous windfall and an intricate dilemma. Is it that unexpected though? I thought a few chapters ago, we were talking about how like, Of course Langdon would go talk to his friend Lee Teabing who lives in the city who's a grail expert once he realises he's on a grail hunt. And also it can't have been that unexpected that Robert's involved considering you were bugging Sonia's office where Fash and Colette were holed up talking about how Langdon did it and Langdon's involved. And then Langdon escaped the Louvre you'd been calling Silas all night with updates to that effect. But no, it's still unexpected that Langdon came to Chateau Vallette. I don't know about that. And so then Teacher Bing's thinking, Remy's prints are all over Chateau Vallette, as well as in the Barnes listening post. So the teacher was grateful that he had taken so much care in preventing any ties between Remy's activities and his own. Nobody could implicate the teacher unless Remy talked and that was no longer a concern. Why? I do, I do believe Remy and Teabing are still intricately linked. If Lieutenant Collette wasn't such a fucking dingbat, I'm sure he could have put two and two together thinking, how's Remy affording all of this listening equipment? How can he have a listening post in someone else's house without that person's awareness? Maybe they're collaborating, but no, nobody could implicate the teacher now. Not a single soul. <laughs> Maybe that guy who's walking his dog who just saw you poison someone in a limo, perhaps them, I don't know. And then teacher bings thinking one more loose end to tie up here. And then he goes into the back of the limo. And then we cut to later, minutes later, the teacher's now crossing St. James Park and thinking only two people now remain, Langdon and Nouveau. So Dan's trying to pull the wool over our eyes. He's trying to be like, oh yeah, he just killed T-Bing off screen. We just get a whole like three pages and a half of Remy getting poisoned with crushed up peanuts. And we're meant to believe that he's just gonna skip over the murder of T-Bing, one of the main characters. If you haven't figured out that T-Bing's the teacher, like you're, you're a dummy. And then get this, Teacher bings patting himself on the back He's gazing triumphantly across the park, staring at his destination. And he thinks in London lies a night, a Pope interred. And it says, as soon as the teacher had heard that poem, he had known the answer. And he's like, I couldn't believe the others didn't figure it out. Yeah, me neither. How come you register it immediately? And yet Harvard scholar, Robert Langdon, doesn't have a fucking clue. Yeah, he's on not a lot of sleep. I'll, I'll give him that. He's still jet lagged from the night before. But if Tebing can get it so quickly, how can Langdon not get it even after going to a library of theology for five hours, it feels like? Even after seeing references to Alexander Pope popping up, he still hasn't twigged yet. Tebing thinks it's because he had an unfair advantage because he was listening in to Sonia in his office. And I guess Sonier talked to himself a lot about Isaac Newton. <laughs> I don't know. It says. The poem's reference to the night was brutally simple once one saw it. It's a credit to Sonya's wit. And yet how this tomb would reveal the final password was still a mystery. And again, that's where, that's where you lose me, teacher Bing, because you're so smart to figure out that that line in the poem is referencing Isaac Newton's tomb at Westminster Abbey. So you figured out that first line of the poem, and then you're ignoring the reference to orb and seeded womb and rosy flesh. You can't, you can't figure out that the code is Apple. Isaac Newton, rosy flesh, seeded womb, orb. He's stumped, he's stumped. And if he knew on the plane, that's where he read the line about the knight and Pope and London and all that crap. He read that on the plane and and had the cryptex in his hand and didn't even try like Apple. Like, come on, mate, you should have solved that hours ago. You don't need to go and visit the tomb. Now he's going to go look at the tomb to see what orb is missing. Google it for one. Secondly, make an educated guess, at least try it. And he even thinks the teacher vaguely recalled photos of the famous tomb, including all the orbs on it. So (laughs) That's the thing. If it's a famous tomb with orbs on it in London, and Isaac Newton was a fucking Priory of Scion member. How come Robert's still running around London without a fucking clue? Apparently a huge sphere mounted atop the tomb was almost as large as the tomb itself. And yet when you're thinking of orbs on tombs, you're not thinking of it. And so even though the teacher recalls photos of it, he's like, no, I need, I need to get up close and personal. He was counting on his closer inspection of the tomb to unveil the answer. Google it. Oh, and all throughout this, he's refusing to admit that it's Westminster Abbey. Refusing. It says the rain was getting heavy, blah, blah, blah. He keeps walking over to the building. Within minutes, he was stepping into the quiet sanctuary of London's grandest 900-year-old building. You can just tell us the name of the building. You could just tell us. And also it's, it's London's grandest 900-year-old building. Does that just mean it's, it's the most grand of all the 900-year-old buildings? Or is it like the grandest building that also happens to be 900 years old? Because if it's just the grandest of all the 900 year old buildings in London, I can't imagine there's that much competition. Also, I just think this is like a fun little moment to sidestep and look at Westminster Abbey. Apparently, after the Da Vinci Code came out, they were getting swamped with tourists and they fucking hated it. So in 2004, the reverend there. Oh, by the way, I always say like that this was set in 2006, but it's 2003. So yeah, maybe technology wasn't as great back then, and the movie was 2006, but whatever. So in 2004, the reverend says that the book was complete and utter rubbish. <laughs> And that by early 2005, Westminster officials provided a fact sheet to their tour guides so that they could set the record straight when asked about the book. Just shit about like Dan said there's brass something or other and they said there's no brass. Dan said there's metal detectors. They're like, that's not true. Anyway, so Westminster Abbey, a Westminster crabby about the Da Vinci Code. And then it says, just as the teacher was stepping out of the rain, Bishop Arangarosa was stepping into it. So he's on the tarmac at Biggin Hill Airport. Are we ever going to escape Biggin Hill Airport? Oh, the shadow that that airport casts on this novel. So he's met by a police officer and the police officer's like, oh, hey, Bishop Arangarosa. Captain Fash is busy, but let's take you to the station. And so is like, whatever. And so they're in the police car and then I guess the police radio crackles and they're like, oh, there's a... There's a albino monk at five or may court. And Aaron Gross is like, go there now. Take me to that address. <laughs> and the police officer is like, as you, as you wish. I did have orders from a captain of a foreign police agency, but yeah, I'll ignore those orders and take you to wherever you want because I'm practically a taxi. And that's the end of that chapter. So we go to chapter 95 and we're
1: back with Langdon at the fucking theology library.
0: And so Langdon, because it's 2003, not 2006, Langdon's eyeing the screen that's pulling up their search of documents. He's eyeing it, and after five minutes, there's only been two hits, both irrelevant. I do still think computers were quick enough in 2003, but no, he's only got two hits. And so we're starting to get worried. Meanwhile, go get him. She's in the adjoining room preparing hot drinks. Okay. How long does it take to make a cup of tea, do you guys reckon? Because it's already been five minutes and she's still pottering away next door. And Langdon and Sophie, the ungrateful little shits. Remember, last week we heard about them being like, oh, we know we don't have an appointment, but we're friends with Sir Lee. And we thought maybe you could just like take time out of your morning to help us for no benefit of yourself. Now they're like, oh, oh, do you have coffee? <laughs> They're like, we don't like tea. Can you please brew us some coffee instead? So maybe that's why Go Get em's taken so long because she's got to dig out the instant Nescafe from underneath the cupboard under the sink. Anyway, so then the computer pings that they've got a new result and Go Get em, who's still, I guess, dunking a tea bag or something. She's like, "What? what's that? Because she heard the ping from the other room. So now she's shouting out, to Robert and Sophie, and they're shouting out back to her describing what they're saying, as if this bitch can't just let the tea bag brew and just walk on over and have a look herself. It's been five minutes already. Okay. So he says, Oh, it says Grail Allegory in Medieval Literature, a treatise on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And go get she says, no, nah, that's not going to do. There's not many mythological green giants buried in London. <laughs> and so then the computer pings again. And this one's the operas of Richard Wagner and go get him. She peeks back into the doorway. Oh, and she's holding a pack of instant coffee. So she's not, she's not started pouring yet. And she's like, that's a weird match. Was Wagner a knight? And Langdon's like, nah, but he was a Freemason. And then we get a whole like prelude to the lost symbol. Ah, because then he's talking about how Mozart, Beethoven, Shakespeare, Gershwin, Houdini, Disney, they're all Freemasons. And the Freemasons have all these links to the Knights Templar, blah, blah, blah. And Langdon says, I wanna look at this one. How do I read the whole text? And go get them. She says, you don't need the whole text. Just click on the hypertext. The computer will display your keyword hits along with mono prelogs and triple post-logs for context. What the fuck? Langdon's like, that makes no sense to me, dull, but okay. And so he presses it and it says, mythological knight named Parsifal who blah, 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 metaphorical grail quest that arguably blah, 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 the London Philharmonic, blah, 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 Rebecca Pope's opera anthology, blah, 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 Wagner's tomb, blah, blah, blah. So those are the keywords all mixed in. And even here we have an instance of Pope as last name, as a surname, and Langdon still hasn't figured it out yet. Langdon says, wrong, Pope, without thinking outside of the box at all. So he's like, well, that's not it then. Of course, of course, that's not it. Why would the operas of Richard Wagner, wh- why would that lead you to the night a Pope interred in London? Like, of, why did he want to read that one? That, oh, the mind boggles. Oh, actually, no, it doesn't boggle because he explains it to us. Of course, no stone unturned in these books. So Langdon then says that. He wanted to look at it because Wagner wrote an opera that was all about Mary Magdalene. Apparently back in the day, the Church of Mary Magdalene or whatever, they disguised themselves as like troubadours and minstrels. And they sang songs about the sacred feminine to try and teach people about the sacred feminine through metaphor and allegory, blah, blah, blah. I also feel like we covered that when he was talking about Disney hiding Mary Magdalene and the Little Mermaid. So like, been there, done that, Robert, we don't need to go over it again. So then they sit, they wait, another result pings, go get them, still working on those drinks. And this one, it's called Knights, Knaves, Popes and Pentacles, the history of the Holy Grail through tarot. And then he, he explains to Sophie how tarot cards are built in with the symbology of the grail Hearts are cups, which is the chalice, which is the feminine. Clubs are scepters, which is the royal line. What? Diamonds are pentacles, which means the goddess, which means the sacred feminine, and spades are swords, which means the blade, which is a male. Clutch on its draws, clutch on its straws. Jump into conclusions. You can't just say that hearts on a deck of cards means it's a chalice, which means it's the sacred feminine. No. No, you can't just make shit up like that. And then it says four minutes later, Langdon began feeling fearful that they would not find what they had come for. Go get him! still making that cup of tea. It's been at least like 12 minutes and she's pottering around being freaking useless, not knowing how to make instant coffee. It's called instant get him. That means you put a spoonful in, you put hot water in, you're done. What could possibly be taking her so long? Four minutes? You don't even have to wait for brew time. Oh my God. So then Gravity of Genius, Biography of a Modern Night pops up and Langdon's like shouting out to go get him because again, she's so busy with that instant coffee. And Langdon's like, Gravity of Genius, Bio of a Modern Night and go get him. She sticks her head around the corner. Maybe she'd be quicker at naked drinks if she stopped sticking her head around the corner. And she says, Ugh, a modern night, how modern? Please don't tell me it's your Sir Rudy Giuliani. So she hated Rudy Giuliani like long before it became publicly popular to hate Rudy Giuliani. That's funny. And Langdon's like, yeah, I know. Right. Modern knights, ugh. And it says Langdon had his own qualms about the newly knighted Sir Mick Jagger. OK, step off Mick Jagger's neck. Why have you got an issue with Mick Jagger? Why is Robert Langdon coming for Mick Jagger? And then he thinks, but this hardly seemed like the moment to debate the politics of modern British knighthood. No, it doesn't. So why are you bringing it up, Dan Brown? And Langdon's like, all right, well, let's have a look at it. So he looks at the hypertext keywords and it says, Honourable Knight, Sir Isaac Newton, blah, blah, London, blah, blah, his tomb in Westminster Abbey, blah, blah, Alexander Pope, friend and colleague. And Sophie because she hasn't contributed anything in the past like four hours. She says, I guess modern is a relative term. And she calls out to Go Get Him. And she says, it's just an old book about Sir Isaac Newton. And Go Get Him's like, yeah, I figured that. Like what? Uh, Go Get Him's like, okay, thanks, Sophie. Thanks for reading out loud. I value your contribution. And Go Get Him, she shoots it down. She says, nah, that's no good. Newton was buried in Westminster Abbey, the seat of English Protestantism. There's no way a Catholic Pope was present. Do you want cream and sugar? She still hasn't gotten to the cream and sugar yet. Are you go, go get them. Go and get them a fucking caffeinated beverage. Like, oh. And then Robert's finally got the brainwave about the Pope, Alexander Pope. Even though he skipped over the clue of Rebecca Pope talking about Wagner. Now he's like, wait a minute, Pope, Pope, that could be a name. And he says, Sir Isaac Newton is our knight. And Sophie says, what are you talking about? <laughs> and Lenin says, Newton is buried in London. His labours produced new sciences that incurred the wrath of the church. And he was a grandmaster of the Priory of Sion. I mean, you'd, you'd think they would have considered that before. I would have just gone through the list of people who were grandmasters of the Priory of Sion and cross-referenced it to where they were all buried. And if one of them's in London, I'd be like, well, that's them, that's them. And Sophie's like, no, dummy, that can't be him. Go get him, just told us that he wasn't buried by a Catholic pope. And that's when he's like, Pope, Alexander Pope. And so the text says, the hyperlinked text with the prologues and the prelogues and the semilogues says, so Isaac Newton's burial attended by kings and nobles was presided over by Alexander Pope, friend and colleague who gave a stirring eulogy before sprinkling dirt on the tomb. Also, side note, westminsterabbey.com were like, no, that never happened. Alexander Pope never gave the eulogy for Sir Isaac Newton. So that's another thing Dan Brown made up. And so Langdon says, yeah, we had the correct Pope on our second hit, Alexander Pope. And I just missed it completely, like whoopsie daisy. And and Sophie takes like another five seconds to figure it out. And then she's like, a Pope. Oh my God, a Pope. And they say, Jackson, yeah. The master of double entendres had proven once again that he was a frighteningly clever man, which I I take Umbridge to as a line in this book because Dan Brown came up with it. He devised that little poem with that little hidden pun and now he's calling it frighteningly clever. So he's really calling himself frighteningly clever, which is just a little too self-congratulatory for my liking. All right, let's finish off with chapter 96. It's just a little one, but it packs a punch. So Silas is waking up and he's like, huh? And he's like, I have a weird little gut feeling that something's going wrong. And he can't pinpoint it. He's listening around. He can't hear anything. He can't see anything. He's like, but something's up. Something is afoot. So he thinks he might be followed. He's feeling uneasy, just out of nowhere. But looking out the window, he sees a faint outline of a car through the hedge and on the car's roof was a police siren. And then he hears the floorboard creak in the hallway and the door latch moves. So he jumps behind where the door will open. So he's hiding behind the open door and the policeman is like, oh, he's not in here. And then Silas slams the door into that policeman's face, being like, ha ha, I was behind the doors. The oldest trick in the book. And then he knees the other police officer in the nuts (laughs) and gets around him. So he's also still in his undergarments, in his jocks and socks. And so he's hurling his pale body down the staircase and he's like, Damn it, someone betrayed me. Ah, oh, this is bullshit. Can't trust the fucking Opus Day. And so all these officers are coming through the front door and then he's like, Aha, I'll take the woman's entrance. Every Opus Day building has one. Yeah, because they're sexist fucking assholes. And the police are so dumb they're not gonna they're not gonna cover the back entrance? I was given the Kent local police shit, but I think the London police are dum dumbs too if they're just stationing all of these officers outside the front of Opus Day, but not near the women's entrance. No, one, no one's considering the women's entrance? Okay. So Silas just runs out the women's entrance. Oh, okay. You know what? I'm wrong. They did station one poor bastard out near the women's entrance. He drew the short straw and he's like, fine, I'll man the women's entrance. So Silas is running outside and then he bumps into this other police officer. Then everyone else is still running out to get him. They sent a lot of officers to get him and so they bloody should have. He's killed like four people. So the officer that he knocked over lost their gun. So he scoops it up, but then someone shoots him because he's holding a gun, obviously. And so then he's feeling this pain below his ribs and so he's been shot. But then this dark shadow loomed behind, coming out of nowhere and was grabbing at him and saying, Silas, no. And so Silas just turns around and shoots. And then he's like, oh no, it's Bishop Arangorosa, whoops. Like, who did you think it was? I don't think the police officers know your name. Or if they do, it's really rude that they're just calling you the hulking albino monk. (laughs) I don't think anyone knows your name, Silas. So when he's like, hey, Silas. And Silas is like, "Pam," before even looking. Like, yeah, that's what you get. So yep, Silas has now killed Bishop Arangorosa and he's also been shot. (gasps) Wow. Finally, we're ramping things up. I thought we were going to hear more park facts and some more trivia about pelicans, but no, we finally got a bit of action. Loved it. So I'm going to leave it there. Next week, we're getting into Westminster Abbey and that's where the showdown finally happens. So that should be super exciting. I'll see you guys then. And as always, you can leave ratings, reviews, reach out on Insta and Twitter. All the contact dates can be found somewhere. Um, And also go to patreon.com slash breaking down bad books if you want to get on the bonus episode train where we're covering Fifty Shades Freed. So I'll see you guys next week for Westminster Abbey. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks.